welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm happy that you could join us today. We are continuing our look at the Ten Commandments. And for today, we're looking at the Sixth Commandment, Do Not Murder, with the lesson titled, Do No Harm. But before we get into the lesson, let's open with a word of prayer. I want to pray the prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Amen. Well, we're coming up to the Christmas season. You're already seeing some signs of that, and you know what Christmas means. It means it's time for that annual movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Now, I'm sure you've seen this movie. You know, it tells us the story of George Bailey. He, because he's given up his dream of traveling around the world, of being a great builder and engineer, you know, of really making his mark, he gave that up to stay at home in his hometown. And now he feels as if his life has been a failure. And so he's contemplating suicide, throwing himself off the bridge, and an angel is sent to him to show him what life would be like if he had never lived. And so when he's confronted with that, when he realizes the impact that his life has had, then he realizes that it hasn't been uh, a failure after all. And so the point of this movie is the idea that all of us, even those who would consider ourselves ordinary, our lives interconnect with others. And so subtracting of a life, of any life, really leaves a gaping hole. And so we have the idea that, that life is precious, life is valuable. And we look at this movie and we think, well, you know, this is just, you know, it's a feel-good Christmas movie. It's supposed to make us feel warm and fuzzy about how everyone is valuable. But, you know, in reality, some people are valuable, some people are not. Some lives are worth more than others. But when we look at the sixth commandment, do not kill, it was given to the Israelites to establish a fundamental principle. Human life is sacred. Each and every human life is to be valued and respected. So we're going to look at that sixth commandment, do not kill. Now, it's one of the shortest of the commandments. But to fulfill this commandment in its entirety is to work to protect and enhance not only the physical life of our neighbor, but also to protect and enhance the God-given dignity of our neighbor. You know, this is a recognition that the sanctity of human life, each human life bears the image of God. Every human is created in the likeness of God, and as a result, each human life is to be respected and is to be valued. We're going to be looking at three texts today. First, the commandment itself from Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Then we're going to look at 1 John 3, 15. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And we're going to finish up with the words of Jesus from Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. So, the principle we are starting with, life is sacred. Now, this means to be set apart for the service of God, to be entitled to reverence and respect. And we've said the biblical reason for the sacredness of life is Every human is created in the image of God. We all bear the stamp of God's image. And so, therefore, the the right to take a life is reserved to God alone. But the commandment against murder in its full meaning is a commandment against violence, to do no violence against our neighbor. That is, no violence against his person, no violence against his reputation, no violence against his dignity. You know, it has requirements both in what we don't do and in what we do. So it's not just a command to keep from harming our neighbor. We are to actively seek the good of our neighbor. Now, as we look at this, the first sin after the fall was murder. You remember the story. Cain murdered his brother, Abel. And when God comes to question Cain, And God asked him, you know, where is your brother? Cain responds, am I my brother's keeper? With the command not to murder. And when we understand all that this means, we hear the answer from God. It's a definite yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are to do everything in your power to make sure that no violence or harm is done to him. You are to seek his well-being. I really like the author C.S. Lewis, and one of his quotes says, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. And Lewis goes on to say that all of the things that we consider permanent, things like nations and cultures and empires and civilizations, all of these in reality are temporary. They are going to fade away at some point. But... The people that we see every day, those that we work with, we live with, we shop with, these are truly immortal creatures who will never die. They will never stop existing. The Matthew principle comes from Matthew 13, 12. And Jesus says, Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Now, the Matthew principle here is basically stating we do not stand still in life. We are either growing closer to God, becoming more and more like Him, or we are growing away from God and becoming less and less like God. Lewis makes the point that as immortal creatures, creatures who will live forever and ever, we are continually becoming either more like God or we are continually moving farther and farther away from God. We are becoming what he describes as either everlasting splendors or immortal horrors. And we play a role in this for our neighbor. We either build up our neighbor or we tear him down. We can do violence to our neighbor, to their physical person, to their reputation, to their dignity, 
or we can actively work to respect our neighbor's life and to enhance that life, to build them up. And this really is the true importance of the Sixth Commandment. It's not likely that you're going to have to choose whether to take the physical life of your neighbor. Most of us are not going to be in that situation. But every day, we do make numerous decisions about whether we will destroy or enhance our neighbor's dignity, what we will do about their standing as beings created in the image of God. Now, as we've said, murder is the taking of a life. It's doing the ultimate in violence against the personhood of another. Are you a murderer? Now, most of us would automatically say, no, no way. But in today's lesson, we want to take a new look at what this means. And so we are going to begin by looking at how Jesus expanded the definition of murder to tell us that murder is not just an action on our part, but murder is an attitude of the heart. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Later, John tells us in 1 John 3.15, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now, there are a lot of things that may hold us back from literally murdering our neighbor. You know, we often say, so-and-so makes me so angry, I, I could just kill them. But usually we don't mean that. Most of us are afraid of going to jail. We don't want to face the penalty of the law, and so we restrain ourselves. But Jesus is saying that in God's sight, if this is the only thing that's keeping you from murder, you are already guilty. Now, we live in an angry society. In a 2016 CNN poll, they found 69% of Americans, now that's well over two-thirds, reported they were either very angry or somewhat angry about the way things were going in the country. And as we look at what's happening in our nation now with the election, I doubt that this anger level has gone down any. Jesus tells us to be angry is to be guilty. But do we really take this seriously? Do we recognize how dangerous and destructive our anger is? Anger in the heart almost always results in violence to others. Now, maybe not physical violence, but some kind of violence or damage results. And our society excuses anger. It even justifies anger. And we have to ask, has this attitude crept into the church? Now, Jesus wasn't the only one who warned us against anger. Later, James tells us in James 1.19, he says we should be slow to anger. Paul in Colossians 3.8 tells us we must rid ourselves of anger, rage, and malice. So, we can see that we have these warnings about danger itself. So, why is anger so dangerous? James tells us to be slow to anger because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But what about righteous anger? Didn't Jesus become angry? 
there is a biblical type of anger. So why does James tell us that man's anger does not bring about righteousness? First, because we are usually angry at the wrong things. A righteous anger is an anger against sin, against the mistreatment of others, maybe against attacks on the kingdom of God itself. But anger that comes from my own wounded pride when someone hurts me, insults me, this anger is not righteous. Secondly, our anger doesn't usually produce righteousness because of how we react to anger. Righteous anger will work toward restoration. Unrighteous anger will work toward destruction. So, when we recognize the seriousness of anger, what do we do? Do we simply suppress our anger? Do we hold it down? Do we put a lid on it? Is there anything we can actually do about the anger itself? What can we do if we find that we are an angry person? Well, James 1.19 gives us a formula for dealing with anger. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So James tells us the key to becoming slow to anger is to be quick to listen and slow to speak. This is key to reducing anger that we listen to each other. And it sounds so simple, but it's something we hardly ever put into practice. Watch any debate, and you see two people who are talking at each other. They're talking over each other, but they're not actually talking to each other. Listening is hard work. It's something that doesn't come naturally or easily to us. Now, I know from my own experience, when I'm talking with someone that I disagree with, I rarely listen to what they say. Instead, while they are talking, I'm busy thinking about the next thing that I want to say. So really, I'm only listening for when there's a break in the conversation, and then I can jump in and say what I want to say. Well, when you really listen to someone, you're recognizing their worth, their value. You're recognizing that they have something worth saying. Titus 3.2 gives us specific guidelines on how we should listen. He writes, Paul writes here, that we are to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, imagine if this was the way that we actually responded to arguments and controversies, to these situations that produce our anger. Our problem is, though, our society pushes us in the exact opposite direction. And the Internet, the Internet has done a lot to improve our lives. Almost all of us enjoy the resources, the benefits that we find there. But there are aspects of social media that we need to understand. Facebook, Twitter, these other social media sites, they are specifically designed and engineered to grab our attention. John Green writes, Twitter is not designed to make you happier or better informed. It's designed to keep you on Twitter. The more people that Facebook attracts and the more time that these people spend looking at Facebook translates directly into more money that Facebook can charge for ads. So, the best way to grab our attention is to fuel our anger and our outrage. 
We get all of these stories that are fed to us, specifically designed to make us angry. Now, we often don't realize it, but what you see on Facebook and what I see on Facebook is very different. Facebook knows exactly what I like and what will make me angry. It feeds me stories and clips and videos designed especially to grab my attention, to make me angry, and it sends different stories to you. So we find ourselves, when we, when we spend time on social media, we find ourselves in this perpetual stew of anger and outrage. And a lot of times we contribute even more by what we post, the statements that we make online. Now, I'm not saying to quit Facebook and give up Twitter. There are a lot of ways that Facebook adds to our lives. You know, it lets us keep up with family. We connect with old friends. But we do do need to recognize what Facebook is doing. We need to think through how we are using it. One key to reducing anger is to learn humility. We have to admit, most of the time we are angry with other people because we want to control them. They aren't doing what we want them to do. Richard Foster writes about the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now notice, we are to submit out of reverence to Christ. It doesn't really have anything to do with the other person. Now, we look at the person we're angry with and we think, but they're wrong. Why should I submit? And sometimes it's important to take a stand, to not give in. But as Foster writes, most things in life are not nearly as important as we think they are. Philippians 2.3 gives us important advice in developing humility. It tells us, Consider others better than yourself. And when I read this verse, I automatically change it to read, Treat others better than yourself. I think of this as kind of a restatement of the golden rule, but it's actually more than that. It's more than how we treat others. It's our whole attitude toward others. What happens if I look at the person I'm in conflict with and I really consider that they may be better than me? that they may have more knowledge about this situation than I do, that they may be smarter than me, that their motives may be purer than mine. Now, I assume that the problem lies with them, but what if I really adopt the attitude, this person probably knows more than me? What if I learn to truly value other people as bearing the image of God himself? If I can do this, I can go a long way toward freeing myself from my desire to manipulate and control others. So we ask the question, are you a murderer? Jesus told us murder is more than just the physical taking of a life. It's that spirit of anger and hatred toward our brother. And this anger may result in physical violence. You know, we see those things happening every day. But for most of us in the church, the danger is Our anger leads us to destroy the dignity and the worth of our brother. Look at what Jesus says here. He says, Whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. Raka is is an Aramaic word meaning 
empty. By calling someone this, you are essentially calling them empty-headed, a dumb, a blockhead, a moron. And we know what fool means. So we commit murder when, through our scorn, our mockery, our insults, we do violence to our neighbor's sense of worth or dignity. To scorn is to believe something is worthless or contemptible. It's an expression of derision. When we show scorn, we denigrate a person, a person who's made in the image of God, who, no matter what, bears some image of God in his life. And just as we have no right to take physical life, that's reserved to God alone, we also have no right to scorn a person as worthless. When you look at Scripture, it, you can see how it describes scorn. You know, it tells us that scorn is dangerous. It takes a hard line against it. The Psalms tell us, Blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of the scornful. And it goes on to say, God himself is scornful toward those who scorn. Proverbs tells us the scorner is an abomination. But somehow, we as Christians find ourselves adopting this attitude of scorn. Greg Goebel writes, Such is the culture of conservative Christianity that scorn is an acceptable sin. When we confront those whom we view as our enemies, uh, those that we are fighting in this culture war, we often give in to the temptation to use scorn. But scorn has terrible effects. It creates a horrible witness. It creates hard feelings and division. It makes us feel superior and proud. But you may ask, what about the prophets? They use scorn. For example, Elijah on Mount Carmel. He mocks the prophets of Baal. But for most of us, we aren't mature enough spiritually to use mockery and satire without sinning. John Piper writes that satire fits our natural sinfulness way too easily. And then he goes on to point, that, point out it's difficult to use mockery without sounding arrogant. James Denny writes, It's very hard to show the magnificence of Christ and my own cleverness at the same time. Now, we talked earlier about social media and how it stokes our anger. But another important aspect of social media is it opens us up to being scornful people. It just makes it so easy to scorn others. We get caught up in confronting those who make us angry. Scorn becomes the natural way that we put them in their place. Tim Arndt reminds us, what we do and what we say on social media really matters. He writes, once they, meaning Christians, tap that social media app, they transform into some kind of a snarling beast. But we have to remember, according to Paul, we are to be ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore, we are to be ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. Now, we look at, at uh, our, our brother and we murder his dignity, his self-worth, when we murder his reputation, when we murder how others see him. And that comes about through gossip, through slander. And you know, gossip is one of the biggest sins that we in the church commit. And it's also one of the most damaging. 
Gossip is so easy to do, and yet it's so easy to excuse ourselves for doing it. Most of us, including myself, we gossip quite a bit, and yet we never admit to ourselves that we are really gossiping. Well, how would you define gossip? I like a definition given by Jeff Adams. He writes, Biblically, gossip is sharing information that ought not to be shared. It may or may not be true. So, the criteria for gossip, should this information be shared? Am I doing more good than harm by sharing this? And if not, do I really have any business talking about it? Now, Scripture describes several types of gossip. There's the sharing of a confidence, something that we learn about a person that's intended to be secret, and we make it public. There's sharing rumors, things we've heard, and usually we don't know whether they're true or not, but we pass them on. There's backbiting, sharing criticism and harmful things about people. There's mockery. Uh, A lot of times we use jokes that aren't really jokes. They have a sting to them. There's innuendo and planting seeds, uh, something to make a listener question uh, the character of another. There's grumbling and criticism, complaining about others. So gossip really is far more serious than we want to admit. And Jesus gives us a warning that really it should shake us to our core. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give an account of every worthless word they speak. Now you think of what that's telling us, every worthless word. So gossip is a form of murder. You are murdering someone's reputation. You are murdering their image in the community. So if we take Jesus' words seriously, If we really want to avoid gossip, how do we learn to recognize when we are gossiping? Matt Mitchell defines gossip as bearing bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart. And this definition gives us two very good tests for gossip. First, bearing news behind someone's back. Would I be willing to say this to the person's face or to have the person know that I said this about them? You know, how many times have you, have I, said something about someone not realizing they were close enough to overhear me and then thinking to myself, "Ah, I hope they didn't hear that. So we also have a second test of gossip, and that is bearing news out of a bad heart. So how do I feel when I share the gospel? Being honest with myself, do I enjoy it even a little bit? Proverbs 18.8 writes, The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. You know, gossip is something we chew on that gives us delight and pleasure. Now, as we look at God's commandments, they were phrased in the negative for the most part. They took the form of thou shalt not. But we have to recognize for every commandment, there's a positive affirmation that goes with the negative. So, there's an affirmation of a principle that we are to carry out. To obey the Ten Commandments requires us not only to avoid doing certain things, but it also requires us to perform certain actions. For example, the the Sixth Commandment that we have been talking about, there's the negative prohibition, 
do not kill. But intended with this is the positive affirmation of respecting the sanctity of life. And it's important that we understand this. God's intention wasn't that the commandments just be a list of behaviors to be ignored, but these commandments were to provide us with principles that guide us into a life that truly honors God. So as Jesus made it clear, there's far more to this command than simply not killing. And we are to embrace the positive aspects of well as well. Scripture makes it plain we have an obligation to do more than just avoid killing our neighbor. We actually are to seek their well-being. We are to do everything in our power to see them have the fullest life possible. And we can see this in the Old Testament. You know, this was a law that said you shall not kill. But there were also laws that punished negligence. And we've seen that the punishment for murder was death. If you killed someone, your life was to be given in return. What we may not realize is, under the Old Testament law, the punishment for negligence could be just as severe. The the Old Testament law stated that if you had an ox and it gored a man to death, the ox itself was was to be put to death. But if you knew that this ox was dangerous, and you did nothing to try to protect your fellow man, you also could be put to death. And so we see an interesting principle. There's not just the commandment to not kill, but you also had an obligation to look out for your neighbor's well-being. And so, you know, the command not not to kill includes more than just physical death. We can also murder by destroying someone's human dignity you know, by gossip, by slander. What we need to realize is we have an obligation not only to avoid destroying their dignity. This is attached to a requirement that we do everything in our power to enhance, to build up our neighbor's self-worth and dignity. Now, what would life be like if we took this seriously? We mentioned Titus 3.2 a little earlier. What would happen if we decided we were going to strictly observe Titus 3.2 in order to guard our neighbor's self-worth? Now, the verse reads, To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That we would speak evil of no one. We would never gossip, share information that doesn't need to be shared. We would never slander, criticize, complain about our neighbor that we would avoid quarreling, to do our best not to give in to anger, to listen to our neighbor, listening sincerely to what they have to say. But what if we went on to take this one step further? What if we adopted Jesus' attitude of going the extra mile? So I'm not only going to not to say anything against my neighbor, but I'm going to do everything I can to increase my neighbor's reputation. I'm going to take every opportunity I can to point out his good points, to make him look good in front of others. Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So, as we go throughout this next week, I want to encourage you. Don't kill anybody. 
Now, I hope you won't do that. You probably won't. But I also want to encourage you. Don't take your neighbor's dignity, your neighbor's self-worth. In fact, go the extra mile. Do what you can to enhance your neighbor's dignity. Remember, each one of us is born in the image of God, and we bear that image of God on our lives. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your blessings to us, for how you've helped us, And uh, as we've studied your word, Lord, for what you have to say to us, help us to put this into practice this week, that we may be the servants that you want us to be in your name. Amen.